and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 198, recorded August 31st, 2020. I am Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And we're joined by a guest. We have Annalena Popkus. Is yes, that right? that's and very correct. Wonderful. She's been on Michael's Talk Python podcast a couple times. Absolutely. And, or at least once. It depends how far out in the future. I think... Uh, in the future, twice. We've already recorded a couple shows together, but it's, you know, we've got quite a buffer there. So this one will be out before. So one and two times. And uh, welcome to this show. Nice to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'll kick it off with the first topic. Give us something easy. Don't make it hard, Brian. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Actually, so when I, I remember, uh, it's been a while since I shifted of thinking about Python as a scripting language to as a full blown language to do like everything, big applications and stuff. Of course, I still do both. I use it for a quick scripting language, but also uh, more meaty things. But uh, back in the day when I was using Bash, if I wanted to have a little uh, script to do with arguments, I'd have like an example Bash file that I would just keep copying from. And I was thinking about that because I I would never remember how to do arguments and stuff and parameter passing through into a little script. And the same is true for um, Python with argparse, but we have of Google now to, to find that information out. But um, I was uh, thinking about that when I saw this this comment on Twitter. It's from Joshua Schreiber. And he said, every time I write a Python script, I have to go back to an old script of mine to remember how to set up argparse. For some reason, it just doesn't stick in my mind at all. And then Ken Yeons Clark, and I think he's been on your show, hasn't he? Michael? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Probably should be, but hasn't. <laughs> he uh, commented and he said, I've got this little utility called uh, new.py. So I went and checked it out and I'm pretty happy with it. It's not something you can pip install. And we're going to link to it in the show notes. It's just part of, he's got a repo for it. And I think he uses it in a book that he wrote. But basically what it does is you, uh, you run it and give it a file name and it d- gives you a little starter script with all argparse stuff with examples. You've got an example positional argument, a string argument, integer argument, file argument, and a Boolean flag. So you don't have to look that stuff up. They're already there as dummy ones. And then you can, you know, add to it and whatever, delete the stuff you don't want. So just in, if you've got this around, you can use it to spin up a new uh, script really easily. And he also just recently added test code for it. So if you pass it a dash T, it'll generate a little uh, stub test file so you can test your script with it too. So anyway, if you're using Python for scripting, I think this is a good thing to look at. I love that. I have the same problem every time. I always copy it from an old script every time. (laughs) (laughs) I was thinking the same thing. Like, what is one of the big difference between beginners and experts? Experts have a whole bunch of these old things they can go copy from. (laughs) Well, I often use, so I'm usually using click or what's the other one that's... Typer. Typer. The business really yeah, awesome. so I'm usually using those for larger applications, but there's a lot of times where you're passing, you have a shared script that you don't really want to have install anything extra. So ArcParse is still in, something to use for a lot of stuff. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, if you don't want arguments, uh, sorry, dependencies, this is a great example there. Because if your script could literally run without a pip install or without a virtual environment, except for that, you know, I probably would just have a slightly more cumbersome bit of code and have it easy, easy to run, you know? Yeah. I've been thinking about how I should really be building more CLI-based applications. And I have an insane number of these little, what I would really call scripts. They're not applications. They're like 
little tools that I just use to run all the stuff around my company. So for example, one that I wrote last week was I had a company that did transcripts for the video courses and then they stopped doing that. You know, it's fine. They they moved on to doing other things, but all of a sudden I had to figure out well, how do I get transcripts again? So I wrote a little script that would go find all of the videos in a course, see if it was missing transcripts, go and use AWS transcribe and just say the videos in AWS uh, S3, do this and then download it and turn it into sentences and subtitles and video. So there's like 50 of these. And I'm, I'm at the point where I almost think I might just make one command line option to run every one of those scripts, right? Like kind of like get with sub commands, like TP space transcripts, TP space video encode, right? Like I'm almost ready to build this huge CLI thing. And I probably won't use arc parse though. I'll probably use typer. Yeah. Sounds like a good idea. Yeah, exactly. Cause I always forget. I'm like, did I write that? What's it called? How do I run it again? To track it down. So this next one comes to us from a, a listener. Exhuma is the username. I didn't get a first last name. So thanks for sending that over. And it's called dbeaver, dbeaver, something like that. So it's for databases and has to do with beavers. So dbeaver, database UI tool. And something about working with databases inspires people to use animal names or creature names. So this is dbeaver. And the one that I mentioned that started got uh, Exuma saying, hey, this is cool, but you should also check this other one out, is I mentioned Beekeeper at beekeeper.io, which is really, really cool. So here's another cool, free, open source database GUI tool. So if you got to work with databases, this looks like a really nice one. Yeah, it looks pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, you know, it doesn't have the full-on marketing, beautiful page. Like if you go to Beekeeper Studio, sorry, beekeeperstudio.io, Man, that thing looks like it could be a VC-funded startup like landing page, right? <laughs> Whereas the Beaver is nice, but it doesn't ha- it doesn't look like ultra polished. But it's based on Eclipse, and it supports eighty different database types. So obviously, the popular ones like MySQL, Postgres, SQLite, Microsoft SQL Server, and so on, but a whole bunch of other ones as well. So yeah, if you got to work with databases and you want some kind of UI tool. This looks like a pretty good option. Do you have an idea why they called it Beaver? I have no idea why they called it Beaver. It's funny sometimes since in machine learning, they had a trend that they named the models like Sesame Street. Do you say Sesame Street? Yeah, 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 yeah. And they started calling them Bird. Like Grover and Big Bird and all this kind of stuff? Yeah, and someone started it and then the others just continued naming the models like that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's really fun. Last episode, which isn't out yet, so there's no way you would have heard this, but we were talking about something on Debian. It was going through the Python Docker script and like understanding what of what it means to like create a bare bones Python system. And found out that Debian names their releases after Toy Story characters. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. And of course, you were doing all of your stuff with 100 Days of Code and Harry Potter, right? Which is also pretty awesome. But there's not really releases for that, is there? No. <laughs> so let's see. So a couple more things that are interesting about dBeaver is it got a nice GUI interface. It has dark mode, light mode, and whatnot. It has support for cloud data sources. So if you're going to connect to, I'm presuming things like uh, hosted databases, like SQL Azure or something like that. But it also has extensions that allow you to work like directly between databases and Excel or databases and Git. 
which I think is pretty cool. And it also will build UML entity diagrams, like show me the relationships of this table, you know, where the foreign keys go and all of the things like that visually, which is pretty nice. If you're just like given a project, here's the database, you're like, oh, what the heck did I just get? Right, you could open it up in something like this. Uh, you know, PyCharm Pro has something along those lines as well, but this is free and open source, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, I use the one for PyCharm Pro for, and the diagramming helps a lot to be able to visualize yeah. what your data is doing. Totally agree. I use it all the time, yeah. All right, well, that's it for DBeaver. I think it's cool. It, people can check it out, compare it with Beekeeper Studio. Great. So I want to talk about PDB++. So I was always using the IPython debugger um, when debugging, but I recently switched from using IPDB to PDB++. So PDB is the Python debugger, like the normal one that's part of the standard library. And PDB++ is an extension of that. So it's fully compatible with PDB, but it has oh, some nice. pretty nice features. And I think they improved de the debugging experience quite a bit. It's very easy to install. So you just type pip install PDBPP since PDB++ <laughs> is not a valid, pa valid package name. And I have two favorites, like it has quite a few additional commands and features compared to PDB, but it has the, all the usual commands that are also part of IPDB, so it's very easy to switch. But there is the sticky mode, which I like a lot. So the official description is that when you're in the sticky mode, every time you change the current position, the screen is repainted, and then the whole function is shown. So when doing step-by-step -step debugging, it's very easy to follow the flow of execution. And I constantly use that feature since I find it very annoying to always type L or double L to see the code. And with a sticky mode, you can just always follow along with the code and um, the flow of execution. I like that a lot. And then there is smart command parsing, which I also like. So if you have, or if you're using PDB, it always tries to interpret the commands you enter as one of the built-in commands, which can be quite inconvenient in some situations. For example, if you want to print the value of a local variable and that one happens to have the same name as one of the commands, for example, you oh, could... Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that could... And I had that quite a few times. So, for example, if you call something P or C and then you want to print uh, the value of that variable but it is interpreted as the command continue, which is C is short for continue. And I think PDB++ has quite a nice solution for that. So when there is ambiguity, so if you have a variable with the same name in the current scope, then that variable is preferred. And if you still want to run the command, you can just prefix it with two exclamation marks. But if you don't have any ambiguity and you type C, then it will always be continue. And I find that very convenient. Oh, yeah. That seems like a great little feature. And it just runs in the terminal, right? So you can run it anywhere that you have yeah. you know, SSH access to or something yes. to that effect. Yeah, I think it's a very nice package. Maybe this is a dense question, but why use this over like an IDE? Oh, I just always use Vim. And... Okay. That's why I got so used to using Vim that I find it very convenient to use PDB or IPDB or now PDB++. I guess I would have to start using an IDE properly to really be able to appreciate it, but 
it's hard if you got so used to using your keyboard and you have your keyboard shortcuts and yeah, I don't think I can switch back to an IDE for a while. Okay. Yeah, it has some cool features as well down here. Like one of the things is if there's a an exception, you can ask it for a postmortem report and it'll give you like extra details in there. You can also do stuff like break on set attribute. So if some kind of attribute is set which is, I guess, a little bit like a conditional breakpoint and say an IDE or whatever. But yeah, it looks pretty cool. I like the fact that it has syntax highlighting and color and all that. Yeah. And autocomplete. I know that it can be quite nice in an IDE too. I think on the last Talk Python episode, it was on the Python. How was that episode so, called? <laughs> it was called uh, the Modern Python Developer's Toolkit yes. by Sebastian Witwaski. Yeah. And you yes. talked about Visual Studio. And um, yeah. Yeah, I know that they, it has quite a few features as well. But when you're used to something like IPDB, this is a very nice addition. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you can also, what's the double exclamation point thing? So you mean what I just mentioned with the command? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when would I run that? So if you have like a variable C and that has some value, so it's a local variable, but you want to run continue oh, in this case, I see. then you would gotcha. have two exclamation marks and the C. Yeah, so that's why it's, it skips it. Okay, got it. understand yeah. now. Cool, cool. All right, yeah, this, you know, I live largely in the IDE world, but if I needed needed to do some debugging outside of it, this is a, a really nice option, I think. Like maybe in a Docker con container, and I don't want to set up like remote debugging and all that kind of stuff. I just, you just want to run it. What's it doing? Yeah, that's cool. Nice. Oh, yes. Today's sponsor is us. So <laughs> thank you, us. <laughs> no. Thanks, Oz. We'll probably have to edit that section. <laughs> Today's sponsor is both Talk Python Training and Test and Code podcast as well. I wanted to highlight. I had some. I think last episode I mentioned that uh, Adam Johnson, which hadn't actually he hadn't actually been on our show yet, but the last episode of Test and Code One Twenty Eight, I did have Adam Johnson on. He is the maintainer of PyTest Randomly. And so we talk about what the importance of randomizing your tests to make sure that you have order dependent, order independent tests. So that's a good episode. But we talk about all sorts of stuff on testing code, including uh, things like tips for working from home. That was on episode 127. So check it out. I think people are doing that more than they used to for some reason. I'm not really sure why. Working from home? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds great. And uh, talk Python training. Yeah, we just released a brand new course move from Excel to Python and Pandas. So if you have been trying to overdo all those stuff that you do with around data with Excel or people you work with are, we created a course written by Chris Moffat from Practical Business Python to basically go through all the main use cases of Excel and show how much easier it is to do that in Jupyter and Pandas. And I think it'll help a lot of people Ooh, get nice. their foot in the door in the Python world. I think that's really cool. I always wanted to learn Excel, but... It's so much nicer with Python that I never got around to doing it. Yeah, that's perfect. That's that's the good side to be on, not the other side. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> awesome. So, Brian, tell us about uh, Markdown. I really like Markdown. I use it for a whole bunch of stuff. And when I, I mean, I so much so that I just kind of assume everybody's using Markdown now. But sometimes uh, people have trouble getting up to speed or you want to share something. Anyway. I came across, I was actually having a Twitter discussion with somebody 
And uh, they brought up this hackmd.io tool. And I'm like, hackmd, I've never heard of that. So I went to check it out and I'm pretty impressed with it. It's pretty cool. It is a paid service, but there's a free option too. So of course I'm on the free option. But the idea is just sort of, uh, you've got the, a similar, there's a lot of tools that do this. You've got a two panel system where you, on the left, you your markdown and on the right, it shows up and you can hide one or the other. But the, what I really like is some of the stuff that I always forget, like how to do, how to insert a picture or do a table of contents or put reference links in or, or footnotes. Those things are just sort of in there with uh, menu items. So I don't have to remember what all those markdown codes are. They just added, apparently you can collaborate and have multiple people editing a document with this. So that's pretty cool. Uh, there's some fancy extra things like uh, UML diagrams that you can add in. And I'm not sure if you're exporting it, you'll have to try to figure out what sort of extra tools you need to actually generate those. But it's pretty fun. The thing that I like that they just added recently, apparently, is um, you can sync with GitHub. So you can keep all your Markdown documents in GitHub and uh, edit them with uh, with HackMD. And that's pretty pretty fun. That's awesome. The other thing I found was uh, this uh, thing called Markdown Guide. And it is just a just a really good, clean reference for Markdown. So I'm going to, there's, I had, you know, a handful of different references that I was using, but I think I'm going to switch to this one because there's tabs that have like a getting started page that I can send people to. And a couple cheat sheets. One of them was is the most common things, and I think it's pretty pretty indicative of common things you'll use. And then an extended syntax page with, and then a bunch of tools you can use. So, so a couple markdown references for people. Have you ever used Pandoc? Oh yeah, I love Pandoc. Yes, since I recently started using it, and I'm preparing my presentations now with Pandoc every time, and I love it. It's just great, great tool. I love about Pandoc is it's not just um, from uh, Markdown to, to HTML, but you can convert to MediaWiki or uh, lots of, or I use it <laughs> a lot of times um, uh, to format my emails correctly in uh, uh, Microsoft Office. I will write them in Markdown and then use Pandoc to uh, generate the, the Word doc version and then copy and paste into an email. <laughs> I know it's uh, backwards, uh, lots of steps, but it works for me. Yeah. You know, it'd be nice to have just a, a HTML, uh, email editor that just takes straight markdown. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah. Uh, and I really like an extension to Microsoft Outlook that had uh, Vim key bindings. <laughs> yeah, that would be, that'd be awesome. <laughs> the programmers are invading Outlook. Uh, yeah, some other cool stuff about markdown or hack markdown, hacked MD is it has a VS Code extension. And like you said, the GitHub integration is cool. It has a browser extension. It, you could turn your notes into a slide deck. You can turn it into like a research project into like what they call book mode. Yeah, it looks pretty interesting. And the collaboration is definitely needed around Markdown these days. Like there's not really a great collaborative place that I know of, although I'm sure listeners are going to send us five examples, which is awesome because they always they always do. But for example, like we you use can paper, do slides which lets with us, this? Yes, you, you can uh, export paper from Dropbox paper, like paper.dropbox.com as Markdown, but it's not full fidelity. It's like 85% that you can edit what you get, but it's still, it's better than nothing. But yeah, this looks cool. Nice. You know what's not cool? Python malware. (laughs) That's not a thing, is it? (laughs) Uh, Apparently it is now a thing. So Connor Fester, Fester, sorry, sent in this interesting article, which was done 
Who was this done by? It was, one second, Cyborg Security. So these guys wrote a pretty cool article about how Python malware is starting to show up. Now, you may have heard articles or mentions of certain package management stores getting infected with malware. Like we talked about some researchers putting some kind of malware onto PyPI. JavaScript had this at NPM. Ruby had this with their gem store. So that's not what I'm talking about here. That's an issue, but that is not this. This is about what are people doing to create the runtime environment, just the the viruses basically with Python. So traditionally this has been like a C, C++ type of thing, but there's some interesting parallels just to go through here. I don't want to encourage anyone to do this, but I want to put it on people's radar to be aware that it could be being done, you know? So for example, one of the challenges of if you build a C++ app, you can just send a binary around and run it. Not so easy with Python, the you know standard library has to be there or C Python has to be there. But they talk about, well, people are using Py2exe and Py2app to package up their Python viruses and send them around. Isn't that weird? I mean, I guess people <laughs> will do weird things. Yeah. So there's an example of Python malware called CDuke that was used against the Democratic National Committee back in 2015 and 16. There's other tools that might be just generally useful to people, regardless of whether it's in this context or not, like uncompile six this is the successor to decompile uncompile in uncompile two i don't know where three four five and went but uncompile six is a native python cross version a python version i guess decompiler and fragment decompiler so what it'll let you do is it'll take python bytecode and turn it back into source code so instead of taking a python file and turn it into pyc you take a pyc and turn it into a python file interesting yeah some people have been shipping PYC files alone, right? And just knowing that those can literally be turned back into source code in like one line of commands should be something on your radar, right? Because it looks safe, but it's not that safe. There's also a high installer extractor. So if you were to ship a library or application as a Py installer thing, here you can turn it back into like a bunch of source files you can open up and stuff. And then they also talk about if you're given an executable, how to understand whether or not it was built with Py installer or if it was built to Py2XE or any of those tools. Like given an arbitrary executable, is this a Python packaged up thing? Yes or no? That's cool. These are great the tools. Yeah. The article looks really interesting. I never thought about malware and Python before. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting details and concrete examples of here's how they did this with this one thing or that. And I think it's an interesting read. Again, not trying to encourage people to do these things, but just raise awareness like what the role of Python is in this, you know, less popularized space, right? People always want to hide what they're doing in this world. There's a, another application for some of these. Sometimes businesses have they'll be afraid to, or like not want to pass around Python files because of the problems with you know, knowing what the interpreter is or something. So they use PyDEXE or something to, to make an executable for a, a tool for the company. And then somebody, and then that gets passed around and they, somebody loses the source or you yes. don't know who has it or something. So using some of these, uh, these reverse engineering techniques to get some source back, that'd be kind of cool to use for that purpose as well. I have an example of that. So one time there was this program we built and 
this was early in my career. I must have been like not so good about checking in stuff. And somehow the thing that I was working on had a file that somehow didn't get added to, to uh, it was SVN at the time. So I had pushed all the changes, but I forgot to add this one file. And then my computer died. And the problem was, it was like my hard drive died. And so like there was some part of the application that in the middle of the app used this library. And then there was the rest of the app that was kind of below that. And so it was really hard to figure out how to rewrite just that middle piece because it was like a weird jigsaw puzzle that had to fit together. So I just went and disassembled the application, found the few files I needed. They were named weirdly, but I just renamed them in a way that worked. And then off it was. I checked it into Git and we were good to go. Or into SVN and we were good to go. And you probably never forgot to check in your files again. No, I'm very obsessive about it now. That's right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, that's all I got for this one. It's an interesting article, though. It's, it's well done with some nice examples. Yeah, so I'm going to go on with, do you call it adders? I call it adders. Brian, what do you adders. call it? Adders. Yeah. Adders. That's really like American English. I would f <laughs> probably say adders, like often and not often. Um, yeah. Okay, anyway, so what is Etters? It's so I only, I think I saw it a few times before, but I never actually looked into the package. But now, a few weeks back, I've started using it for the first time. So, what is Etters? It's a Python package that simplifies writing classes. So, it creates a lot of the Dunder methods automatically. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and when I first saw it, I thought, we have data classes, so why do we need Etters? And only then I realized that Adders is much older than data classes. So PEP 557 added data, data classes to Python 3.7. And they do resemble Adders in many ways. So when I started reading a bit on the documentation page of Adders, I found out that the PEP was actually inspired by Adders. And it was the result of the, com of the wish of the community to have a simplified way to write classes without having to deal with the problems that name tuples have. And the, I think the main difference between adders and data classes is that data classes are strictly less powerful and that certain features were sacrificed for the sake of simplicity. So it's very easy to use data classes. They are part of, I think, 3.7. With 3.7, yeah. they come automatically. But if you have 3.6, you have to pip install them. But You don't have to get a new package for them. And it's very easy to use them, especially if you have classes with many attributes. But with Adders, you have quite a few additional features. For example, you have validators um, that you can use when you have your initializer in the class and you want to perform some kind of validation of the input arguments, like checking that they are an integer or some other type or more fancy stuff, then you can do that very easily with Etters and it's a very powerful library. So I think I need a lot more weeks to really get into the details and all its possibilities. Yeah, this is a good one. There's a lot of subtleties around creating classes that you're that can be a little bit annoying. Like, wouldn't it be great if you could have it print out something other than just the name of the class at some memory address <laughs> automatically? That would be nice. If you create a dunder equal dunder eq method well you got to remember to create the not equals that is the opposite of that and oh if you create equals maybe you also have to implement hash as well because all of a sudden 
if two things are equal, you put them in the dictionary, but then they're not the same thing. That's going to be all sorts of crazy. It just starts to cascade. You're like, wait a minute, doing this right. It's not so easy. And so I think that's the kind of the Zen of the adders. Yeah. Yeah. I found it a bit confusing in the beginning with the syntax, how it looks like if you declare an attribute, like it's a decorator adders, but then for the attributes of the class, you have this, is it adders.s or yeah. something? And I found that a bit confusing in the beginning since data classes are, I think, more beautiful when you write them and you don't need this extra bit. But once you get used to The syntax, it's very nice and easy to use. I, I have to agree. I, I like the data class syntax better. The dotness of uh, the adders syntax is cute, but bugs me a little bit. Like attrib, the, attribute, at, the attributes are attr dot ib, and it's not something I really enjoy, but it's not difficult either. The main switch for me, I think, is now, now that data classes are here, I use data classes all the time. But when I need a validator, the validation mechanism in adders is is pretty darn cool. So if you want data validation, um, adders is still a great thing to pull up. I agree. Like, I really wish that validators were in, or at least maybe there we could have a an extra package that could we could pip install or something that that would make data classes have validators. Hopefully, I know there's yeah. other things that you can do. To validate schemas and stuff like that. Yeah, I feel like there's a little bit of a paradox of choice. Like you, you look at all these things and you want all of the the features that like kind of in this impossible combined way. So adders is cool. They've got things like you can say that these attributes can only be set as keyword arguments in the initializer and not as positional arguments and just KW only equals true, stuff like that, which is pretty cool. And then you've got the Pydantic models, which have like built-in validation for all sorts of types, which is cool. You've got data classes. Those can be frozen, which is kind of nice. There's a lot of stuff going around here, and I feel like I'm underutilizing all of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, grab what you need. It's good. Yeah. Throw some tests yeah, exactly. around it and switch later. For me, it's sometimes just easy to forget what's out there since there are so many nice packages, and I sometimes hear, like I listen to a podcast, and then I think, oh, that Package sounds cool, but I don't <laughs> have an application for it right away. So I forget about it again. And then in some context, I hear about it again. And I think, oh, yes, you always wanted to try that. <laughs> but I think at least with Etters now, like I will use it again quite a few times. Yeah, I have that same problem. I get excited about all these things, but I don't have a chance to use them. And then I, I forget. Then I'll rediscover like, oh, yes, that's why I thought it was cool in the first. You, could, you should create a Harry Potter style project yourself. For I trying should. out all these things. That's right. Like awesome Harry Python, Harry Potter <laughs> Python. <laughs> I'm going to work Python. on the naming. I like yeah. Harry Python. Yeah, well, it might, it might invoke images that are not exactly the same what you're thinking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Never mind. Yeah. All right. Well, you guys got anything extra? I don't. Brian? No extras? No. No? How about you? And Elena, maybe take a, a moment and just tell folks like what you're up to. We didn't give you a really introduction on the kind of work and stuff you're doing? Yes. So I think the first time Michael and I talked on Talk Python to me, I was still an AI resident at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. So I was doing a lot of machine learning research. So working in the middle between a full researcher and a full software engineer. And now I'm a machine learning engineer here in Germany in a company called Innovex, where I do like I apply machine learning to projects, proper real-world problems, which is also very interesting. 
and I do all kinds of stuff now, data engineering. So yeah, I'm always learning new things every day, which is really nice. Yeah, that's very cool. All right. So I've got a couple of things really quick to share. I was on a cool podcast TV-like show called Technado, which was uh, a cool experience. It's a little bit like Python Bytes, but for the IT space. So that was a lot of fun to be on there. And uh, on YouTube, you can check it out. And we played the game Python, 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 where we would get partial words out of a headline. And we'd have to decide, is it Python the snake, Monty Python, or Python the programming language that the article's about? And that was pretty fun. So you could check that out over there if you're interested. <laughs> Sorry. So did you win? I completely got crushed. I think I got last because I wanted everything <laughs> to be about Monty Python. And they're like, no, that's about a snake. I'm like, oh, come on. That should have been, so, that would have been so funny if that was about Monty Python. But no. Yeah. I let my uh, hopes and dreams get ahead of me. Maybe next time. <laughs> exactly. I'll come back for the championship later. All right, Brian, what do you think about this joke? I haven't looked at it. Oh, perfect. Then you got to open it up. And Elena as well. This one is as per usual for us, a visual joke in an audio format, but I think it's going to work great. So this one is called The Only Valid Measurement of Code Quality. And I know, Brian, you're very passionate about high quality code and testing and stuff like that. Have you seen this metric built into any of the software you used? <laughs> well, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe with some voice recognition and some AI, and Elena could put something together for us, like starting the code review now. Yeah. <laughs> It looks so funny. I love that. Yeah. So this is the only valid measurement of code quality is WTFs per minute. I'll try to keep this uh, without the explicit tag, but WTF. <laughs> so there's a comparison here. On one hand, we've got the good code review, which is still like, it's like a door that's closed and you can just see like statements of what people's going on. It's going on the side. You hear this WTF, WTF. What is this? That's the good code. The bad code is just full of them. It's like WTF. What the WTF is this? A dude, WTF. Uh, WTF. (laughs) I think this really captures code review pretty well. It does. (laughs) Anyway, the only valid of uh, measurement of code quality, WTFs per minute. WTFs per minute. Definitely. (laughs) All right. Well, that wraps it up for this week. All right. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, Elena, for being here. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you bet. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. This is Brian Aachen, and on behalf of myself and Michael Kennedy, thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.